Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. My name's Simon, welcome, welcome. What happens on this show is one of my writers, and in this case, Chris, thank you, Chris, has written me a script. Uh, it's the Moore's Murder. Mur- murderers, uh, murderers looks like it has way too many E's and R's in it for some reason. Uh, obviously a word I've looked at before, this being a true crime channel and all. The Moore's Murderers, uh, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. This is a British case. I mean... The Moors sounds like the most British thing ever, but I, what I'm trying to say is I've vaguely heard of this, I think, maybe. I don't remember, I, look, I'm not going to know any details because I have a brain that functions in a similar way to a sieve. Information goes in, it gets mushed up and comes out like, is that how a sieve works? I don't even know, look, my brain isn't very good. Let's just jump into it. The idea, uh, if you're new to this show, welcome. I've not read this before, we're going to explore it together. It's going to be fun, except obviously it's not because it's all about murderers. David Smith, a 17-year-old Manchester lad, didn't think anything of it when his sister-in-law showed up at his place and asked him round to her house. She and her boyfriend Ian would often visit with David and his wife Maureen, and Dave and Ian would frequently drink cheap wine until just past midnight talking about Germany, the many achievements of Adolf Hitler, Ian's interest in sexual sadism, and the Marquis de Sade, and make vague plans to rob a bank or a post office or something. Oh my god, (laughs) what are you guys up to? Wait, in like the... In one sentence, if we established that they're alcoholics, they they're, they're neo-Nazis. Wait, when is this taking place? Do we even have a date on this yet? Oh God, they love Hitler, and also that they want to rob a post office. Only, <laughs> you know, guy talk. <laughs> When I hang out with my mates, what do we talk about? Yeah, mostly uh, how much we love Hitler, how much we're sexual sadists, and also how we're going to go knock over the post office, knock off the post office. I think I'm going to go now. Not really. Not really, police. Not really. When he arrived at the house on 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, was a little surprised to find another young man there, another 17-year-old who was introduced as Eddie. He went into the kitchen as he'd been offered to sample some bottles of wine that Ian didn't want to drink. And whilst there, he heard screaming. He ran back into the living room, thinking the new bloke might be attacking his friend Ian, but what he saw instead was Ian repeatedly smashing an axe into Eddie Evans' head and body. Eddie slumped to the floor, and Ian hit him a few more times before grabbing a piece of electrical flex cord and strangling the poor boy to death. Oh my god. Chris. Talk about a heavy open. Christ. Here we go! David, understandably frightened, cooperated when they insisted that he help with cleaning and wrapping up the body for disposal. That was the messiest one yet, Ian commented to Myra. It usually only takes one hit. At some point, Ian chuckled about the fact that this one was a bleeder and a brainy sort as they scrubbed brain and blood from the floor. Ian was unable to carry the body to Myra's van, so he arranged for Dave to come back the following night with a pram as Dave had a newborn. Oh my god, dude, did you just ask your mate to bring round his pram so you can move a very bloody and brainy body around? You sicko. The plan was to load it up in the pram and then drive out to the moor. Dave got home at about three in the morning, woke his wife Maureen, and told her everything. A few hours later, armed with a hammer and a screwdriver for safety, they both went to a phone box and called the police. Or at least, that's David's story, which he stuck to 
until the day he died. Some of the accounts, including his own on separate occasions, vary slightly in terms of details, but then David told the story for decades and also dozens if not hundreds of times under intensive police interrogation, so it's understandable that some of his available transcripts don't quite agree with each other. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like you tell a story over and over again and then you accidentally change a detail and the next time you tell that story you use that detail and then the story that you tell over and over again is really different to the original story and it really makes it look like you're hiding something <laughs> but the reality is you're just shit at remembering <laughs> Some have speculated that he might have been far more involved, as David and Ian frequently spoke about committing crimes together, and they had talked about, quote, rolling a queer, i.e. enticing a homosexual back to the house and then robbing him. At least, that's what Ian Brady initially insisted, claiming at his trial that he and David had killed Eddie together. Whatever might have been going on between the two men, we now know that young David was completely unaware an axe murder was about to take place. Why? How do we know that for sure? Didn't we just say that maybe he... Uh, knew what was going on the entire time. How do we know for sure? I guess this will be explained. The police arrived the next morning, cautious in the knowledge that there were firearms in the house. I don't know why Chris hasn't given me a bloody date, but I skipped ahead a little bit. The boy has no patience. And it's happening in the 1960s. <laughs> a date would have been helpful, Chris. This was well before the days of SWAT teams or SO19 hut-hitting all over the place and repelling down buildings, so they needed to think carefully about how to effect entry. Spotting a bread delivery van nearby, Detective Superintendent Bob Talbot approached the driver and borrowed his white uniform coat before knocking on the door. <laughs> Is this how police used to say the master? It'd be like, no, 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 we're not going in prepared. I'm just going to, I'll just find someone. I'll just borrow a disguise. <laughs> like, can I borrow that coat, mate? It'd be like... <laughs> What are you doing, Bobby? Come on! Myra Hindley answered it confused, as Tabor wore a tip-top bakery's coat, and as she put it, our house always took mother's pride. Um, what are you talking about? Oh! Oh my god, yeah, back in the 1960s. <laughs> a little bit of context here would have been helpful. Um, I think, you know, like, as is this just a British thing, but you know how you used to get milk delivered to your house? Like, I am old enough to remember that. Like, when I was a kid, this milk would arrive in these glass bottles and they'd have these weird foil tops and there was a dude called a milkman who rode around on, like, uh, a milk float, which was like a Tesla, like, because uh, it was electric. And uh, I guess they also used to, if I remember rightly, they'd always deliver bread. So, um, Mother's Pride, I believe, is a brand of bread. I'm really stretching it here with my knowledge. <laughs> Her confusion was resolved when Talbot identified himself as a police officer and demanded entry. Inside, they found Ian Baker in his underwear, sitting on a divan and writing a sick note to send into work. They also found a locked bedroom door. Hindley said the key was at work, but when they offered to drive them to the office to pick it up, Ian told Myra to surrender the key. Their police found the body of Edward Evans stripped, mutilated, hogtied, and wrapped in plastic. Naturally, at this point, Ian Brady was arrested on suspicion of murder. Myra Hindley wasn't, as this was 1965 in the north of England and women were far too peripheral and far too heavily stereotyped to pop out immediately as a suspect, especially when there was a man nearby. There is a dead, mutilated body locked in the bedroom. And I mean... <laughs> She's right there. How could she not know? Arrest her just in case. <laughs> the past, everybody. At least nowadays, because, you know, we have better gender equality, the woman would also get arrested. 
Despite not being under arrest, Myra insisted on accompanying Ian along with her dog Puppet to the station, and so they all toddled off to the local Nick. None of the police involved at the time had any real inkling of what was coming, a criminal case which incensed an entire nation and which has reverberated through to the present day. The Moore's Murders case, as it came to be known, became the catalyst for significant reforms in both criminal justice system and press regulation. Oh, I like that. That's a good... That's going to be exciting in the episode, like when the press gets all wild. <laughs> There's going to be so many allegedlies. As well as sparking vehement debate in both houses of parliament, as well as the court of popular opinion. Its ripples even disturbed the serene waters of academia, sparking furious for academia arguments about the agency and representation of women, the nature and origins of psychosis and psychosexual sadism, the permissive society and mass media, censorship, and the sociological and psychological origins of evil. Oh my god, this case opened some doors, didn't it, Chris? Jesus. Abandon all hope. The last time I edited someone's master's thesis, I saw the quote, Every story's a Jesus story, whether the author knows it or not. I put a comment on this saying, slight overstatement. As while this isn't strictly true in all cases, the vast majority of Western literature, especially in the English-speaking world, has been shaped by the lingering remnants of Christian mythos. What this means is that almost every story ends up being about redemption of some kind, either of the self-sacrificing hero, or the world, or both. I mean, okay, steady on again. I mean, yes, these are like, it's a Jesus story, sure. But the idea of someone self-sacrificing is not just 2,000 years old. There are stories that are much older than this, and the Jesus story is just... I mean, it's not a particularly unique story, like, in terms of the overarching themes of it. It goes back a really long way. Stories have been going on a really long time, probably as long as humans have been humaning. So ubiquitous is this mythos that even non-fiction pieces are frequently structured this way, following an arc of redemption carefully plotted out by the writer through selection and emphasis of facts. I wonder if this is true for my stuff. <laughs> All my stuff is a Jesus story. All hail! This, however, isn't a story which can, nor should, be treated as such. There's no real upside here, as D.S. Topping, who led the later phase of the investigation. I think D.S. stands for Detective Superintendent, but I'm not sure. And there's also D.I., right? Detective Inspector? I'm sure it's like some sort of rank thing in the police that I don't understand. He said, to sum it up, what they were about to do was pure evil. They set out to rape and murder small children. Oh god, why? 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 I always say this. We start off with something and it's like, oh, there's been a horrible murder. There's a guy and they've they've mutilated him in the bedroom. And then it's like, oh, God, that's horrible. This is going to be a horrible episode. And it's like, oh, yeah, and, the, and also small kids. Why? And I always, I, like, I've said this a million times before, but it just hits so much harder being a dad of two small kids. Like a few years ago, I'd be like, oh, yeah, small kids. Eh, they're kind of annoying. <laughs> and now I'm like, no, not the children. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Crimes like this don't fit a neat redemption arc. They shatter the lives they come into contact with, to say nothing of the innocent lives they brutally end, leaving nothing but an ugly scar on the collective memory of the communities they've ravaged. Even closure, the second draw prize where redemption's not available, is difficult to find here. Many central questions around the case are doomed to remain open for the foreseeable future, as the bulk of available information comes from third parties, journalists, and pairs of liars and murderers who didn't confess for 20 years. This is just a horrific series of events from which it's near impossible to extract hope or meaning. 
So now you've been warned. Let's proceed. Wait, aren't they at least going to go to jail forever? I mean, yes, people are going to get murdered. It's a true crime podcast. That's what's happened. That's what happens. But at the end, isn't it? Most of the time, it's like, and they got killed in a police shootout. And they got strapped to an electric chair. Or in the UK, you, they got done in for murder. So maybe they got 20 years and then <laughs> got to leave prison. <laughs> if you murder children, I, uh, you should be in prison forever. There's no redemption for you. There's no, oh yeah, no, he's been fixed by the prison system. Even if he has, f that. Stay in prison forever. Where you belong, you f***ing monster. Just before we continue with today's episode, it's brought to you by Honey, which is the easiest way to save when you're shopping on your iPhone or your computer. Look, who doesn't shop online? Everyone shops online. You go to this website, then you get to the exit, and they're like, hey there, you got a code? And it's like, no, I just wanted this item, and now you've taunted me, website. You've dangled this in front of me, and I've got to go to Google and look it up, and there's a website, and it doesn't work, and then it's like you try another one, it still doesn't work, and it's like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your life? Avoid this waste of life and save money with Honey. Honey makes manually searching for coupons a thing of the past, and plus it's free. It's a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one that it finds to your cart. So not only are you not having to go to Google, not only are you not having to try all those codes that don't work, but it is finding the best, the best one. I've been on there, like, sometimes. I can't remember what website it was. And the code it found for me was, like, employee discount code of, like, 70% off or something insane. And I'm like, honey, you legend. And whoever submitted this, you also are a legend. Bravo. So, uh, how does it work? Well, you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. I kind of mentioned this already. They've got that apply coupon thing. Um, but Honey just jumps in at that point. It's like flicks through all of the codes. And if it finds one that works, it plugs it in. It finds the best one that works, sorry. Plugs it in. And then it takes it off your bill. You know, like a coupon. I've used this to save on, oh, I don't know. Electronics is a big one. Digital subscriptions, I think, is another big one. Because often these, you know, they're more like American-based. But if there's something digital, often I find that, that that saves me something. But look, especially if you're American you listen to this, I'm kind of jealous because that, that honey is going to be saving you so much coin. Plus, it doesn't just work on your desktop. It works on iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out by getting it. You'd be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. Look, I wouldn't recommend something I don't use. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com/casual. That's joinhoney.com/casual. And now back to the show. The Moors Murders. What follows is the most factual accounting possible of the Moore's murders. As one of the bodies has never been found, the case is still open, so many of the official documents are sealed. They're technically available under the Freedom of Information Act, but my FOIA request was knocked back to almost immediately. In less time, it would have taken to read it, I'd say. Wow, legit. To Chris, did you really make a Freedom of Information Act request for this? That's awesome. Wait, but doesn't that mean they have to... Re oh, no, they could be sealed because it's like a sensitive ongoing investigation. But I thought then they had to send it to you just with, like, tons of redacting. Freedom of Information Act is quite cool. Like, the stuff you get out from that is really interesting sometimes. 
While I asked some of my journalist and law enforcement friends for advice, they came back with the suggestion that something about this case might be embarrassing to the government in some way, allegedly, and that as far as they can make out, rejections have been pretty routine. Having said that, there's hours and hours of interviews with the investigating officers and victims' parents, as well as partial transcripts of interviews with David Smith, Ian Brady, and Mara Hindley, as well as partial transcripts of the trial scattered across various books about the case. There's also those books themselves, but many of them are garbage. Of special note, On Iniquity by Pamela Hansford Johnson stands out as particularly egregious. Oh shit, Chris, throwing some shade. And we'll just say that uh, this is Chris's alleged opinion. <laughs> The book's central argument seems to be that freely available pornography, girls in short skirts, and men with long hair directly led to a pair of psychotic child rapists spraying on the children in their immediate neighborhood. Okay, I take it back. This is stupid. <laughs> What's ruining society? Too much pornography! What else? Short skirts! It's outrageous! Can't we just enjoy these things? Which is about as sensible as saying that video games directly led to gun violence. And I'll say it again. I've said it a million times. Number of people I've killed. Civilians. People just walking down the street. I've murdered in GTA in absolute cold blood with guns, with vehicles, whatever. Many. At least hundreds. Number of people I've murdered in real life in cold blood. Or, I don't know why I needed to add that qualifier there. <laughs> Number of people I've just murdered in real life. Zero. Number of people I've killed in. Well... I mean, being, like, killed means, like, is that responsible for death? And in that case, you don't know. Because then you could, like, be at uh, a traffic light, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna, okay, oh, you know, I almost made that, but it was a red, you know? And so you come to a stop, and then it's like, little did you know. You know that sliding doors thing, you know, where it's like, okay, what if I'd have run that and gone just through on the yellow? I'd have saved someone's life, because then I wouldn't, you know, in the parallel world where I went, ran through and did that... You know what I'm talking about where it's like, you know, this is just such a stupid like butterfly effect thing, but it's like you could have killed someone and not known it or been responsible for someone's death. Am I making any sense here? Let's just be 100% clear that I haven't f***ing killed anybody. I'm just trying to make a point. This really sounds like I've killed someone. <laughs> the chief virtue of the book is that it's short, the author having kindly excluded anything resembling evidence to support her assertions. There are a few others which are a little more than a very dark brand of soft porn, and a couple which are an excellent analysis of the case despite being somewhat dated. But good or bad, I was able to use the primary records which they'd been granted access to. Those same records, HMG, deemed... Uh, H oh, Her Majesty's Government. Okay. <laughs> deemed unfit for me to see. It sounds, Britain sounds so antiquated where everything's like Her Majesty's, like Her Majesty's government. Uh, Her Majesty's, what's the prison one? Her Majesty's prison service or something like that. As well as partial transcripts of the trial and documentation from Myra Hindley's sentencing appeals. Fortunately, there's been a high level of academic interest in the case, so there's a wealth of white papers, dissertations, and doctoral theses. I've relied heavily on some of these, with an emphasis on criminal psychologists, criminologists, and historians. That sounds like a great place to place emphasis. Rather than, like, who did we rely on? Well, this gr there was one piece by a nutritionist. <laughs> a special shout-out needs to go to Ian T. Fields, PhD. Shout-out, Ian. His thesis media on media representations of the Moors murders was of immense value. I also dipped quite heavily into Hansard as the case was discussed in depth and at length in the House of Lords. Some excellent reporting by The Times, BBC, Channels 4 and 5, The Daily Mail. Excellent reporting by The Daily Mail there. <laughs>
The Daily Mirror and People rounded out the picture. Shout out Daily Mail. I mean, of course, we expect good journalism from the Times, but I mean, shout out Daily Mail, Daily Mirror and People. Good. I like that. It's nice to see because normally I shit on those papers. Isn't, and isn't People a magazine? <laughs> Shout out! As many of the online sources either disagreed about basic facts or contained very little that wasn't dark titulation or armchair psychology. With that said, I have to apologize if some facts are incomplete or uncertain, as I've prioritized that which can be actually known. Without that way, let's crack on, shall we? On the 12th of July, 1963, the British Railways Club in Gorton, a suburb of Manchester. That sounds like a fun time. No, I'm just, I, I kind of like trains. I love riding on trains. There's a bunch of train journeys that I want to do. Like, I don't know, one thing, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan and the Darjeeling Limited, where the, the brothers take the train trip across India. I was like, oh my god, I just want to go on cool train trips. So, I mean, now I've got kids, I'm like, no, not really realistic. Just being crammed in a tiny compartment with kids for like several days just sounds like a nightmare. So now it's like, where should we go on holiday? Anywhere with plenty of bedrooms and lots of space and maybe toys? <laughs> oh, dad life. Hashtag. <laughs> I went to a... I went to a hotel a few weekends ago, um, just for a little weekend away out of the city, and we're staying there. And I've never been so excited about a restaurant with a bouncy castle. Because <laughs> like normally, like before kids, selecting restaurants, hmm, what's, you know, how's the food? Is it comfortable? What's it like inside? How's the service? Is there a garden if it's summer? Now I'm like, don't give a shit, don't give a shit, don't give a shit, don't give a shit. Does it have a play park? Is there a children's corner with toys? Or how tolerant are they of children? <laughs> Quality of food? Don't really mind. Comfortable chairs? Don't really mind. Service? Nah, they have it. <laughs> Sorry, let's move on. We're here for true crime, aren't we all? So the railway club's meeting in Gorton, a suburb of Manchester, and they were hosting a dance. 16-year-old Pauline Reed had arranged to go with a couple of friends, but they pulled out at the last minute and her mother didn't want her to go alone. She had her heart set in it, however, and put on her brand new white court shoes and a bright blue coat in readiness. She got her mother, Joanne, to help brush her hair while she persuaded her that she'd be likely to see other friends at the dance so she wouldn't really be alone after all. Joanne relented, clipping her own necklace around her daughter's neck as she left. Joanne recalls Pauline protesting, but mum, it's your favourite necklace. Well, you are my favourite girl, Joanne said before waving her off down the street. Oh, Chris, I know what you're doing. You're making them seem like these wonderful people because she's going to get murdered. It's like, you know, when you're watching a movie and for some reason, you know, it's just, I guess it's like weak storytelling or scripting or whatever, but it's like, wait, why are we learning so much about this person? Why are they suddenly telling us about their kids and their family and how their, like, grandfather's sick? And you're like, oh, I see. They're gonna get killed. This is the humanizing part. And immediately, whenever I see that, I'm like, don't get attached. Don't get attached. Don't get attached. Person's probably a murderer. They probably killed. <laughs> like Simon! <laughs> On the way, Pauline saw a van pull up in front of her, and Myra Hindley, her friend Maureen's older sister, was waving her over. Myra asked if she'd be willing to help find an expensive glove that she'd lost on the moors. She could drive them out there, and as a reward, she promised her some gramophone records for her trouble. The fact that she knew Myra, as well as the enticing prospect of some records, persuaded her to go along. According to her mother, she was also the sort of girl who was just eager to be helpful, especially to neighbors, friends, and family. Myra introduced Pauline to her boyfriend, Ian Brady, who was following on his motorcycle and the three of them went to the moors together. Once they arrived, Myra waited in the van while Brady and Pauline went down to the moor. Brady took this opportunity to rape and torture Pauline before cutting her throat and calling Hindley down to help bury the body in a shallow pit. How old was this girl? Sixteen. It doesn't matter how old she was. Does it? 
This is just... Oh... From Hindley's account, Brady had cut her throat somewhat inexpertly as she was still alive when she came down to help with the body. Myra Hindley and Ian Baker had been planning to commit the perfect murder, inspired in part by the crimes of the so-called genius killers Leopold and Loeb, who you might have heard about on this very channel. Yeah, and let's uh, let's get something very clear. Leopold and Loeb, while they have somehow garnered the moniker the genius killers in YouTube world and true crime world, they're stupid. They, made, they weren't bright guys. They were just, I think they were just they went to school. I think that was the only thing about them. And they weren't stupid. But then, in their crimes, they were stupid. They made some fundamental errors, rudimentary errors, that got them caught almost immediately. They were idiots. And I think people who think they're geniuses are just reading inaccurate facts. And also the perfect murder and all this stuff. Well done. Well done, you heroes. You did something amazing. You committed the perfect murder of a 16-year-old girl. Um, f you. And is is that rape part of that perfect murder? You f***ing high and mighty piece of shit. They'd gone cruising down Gorton Lane, the plan being that Myra would drive ahead and Ian behind, a classic front-and-follow configuration. Ian Brady would flash his headlights when he'd chosen a victim, which would signal for Myra Hindley to stop and entice them into the mini pickup. The first girl Brady chose was eight-year-old Marie Ruck, but Myra refused. Marie was a close neighbor of her mother, and Myra feared an intensive outcry if a girl of that age went missing. When Brady selected Pauline seconds, Myra had reasoned that a teenage girl gone missing would cause less fuss that people might think should just run away, and also that should be easy to lure into the van owing to their relationship. According to Myra, she suspected Ian had raped her from the disarrangement of her clothing, but there'd been no talk about sexual assault in their planning. There are reasons to seriously doubt this, which we'll get into later. On their way back from the moors, the pair passed Pauline's mother, Joanne, and friends from the neighborhood searching for Pauline, as word got out that she was missing. Over the years, Myra Hindley would have frequent conversations with Joanne Reed, comforting her about the disappearance of her daughter and telling her that she'd turn up soon. You psycho. You absolute f***ing psycho. And how has it been over the years? Oh, Jesus. It's gonna be... A... Let's just carry on. 12-year-old John Kilbride went off to the cinema on the 23rd of November that same year, 1963. In an interview with Channel 5, John's mother, Sheila, described him as a cheeky boy, smiling fondly as she said the words, explaining that the reason for sending him off to the pictures was that he was tormenting his siblings and generally being rambunctious. Before he'd set out, she warned him to be on his guard, as the neighborhood was still reeling from the disappearance of Pauline Reed. In the same interview, Sheila expressed her regret at having only warned her son to watch out for bad men. Quote, I never thought there were any bad women out there, she said. When John failed to return home after the movie, Sheila wasn't that worried. He assumed he was just watching it over again, as in those days films commonly ran on loop. What John was actually doing, though, was earning a bit of pocket money on the market round. Young kids used to go around market stalls and help shift boxes, clean up, or do other odd jobs for a few pennies. For all I know, they still might. <laughs> that sounds like something that went away when they were like, maybe we shouldn't be having child labor. <laughs> Maybe businesses should be paying fair wages. Although as a kid, I'd be like, I don't give a shit what the fair wage is. It'd be like, I want to, you know, I'd like to earn, if you're going to pay me a pound for like an hour's work as a kid, which is well below minimum wage. Even when I was a kid, I'd be like, I'm down. Pound gets you a lot of like sweets. <laughs> anyway, John was busy doing this when he came across Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, who'd been cruising the markets for another victim. Myra took care of the approach, persuading John to help them with some boxes in their van. This would be paid work with a bonus offer of a bottle of sherry. Wait, what? He's 12. <laughs> what are you doing? At 12? I, d I don't know. 
I remember what I, I think it was 11 or 12 when I got very excited because I had a sleep. We had a sleepover. It was, I don't know what kids did in those. I guess they still do. And it was like me and eight of my mates. And we just were staying around my mate's house for his birthday or whatever. We'd play like video games all night. And one of my mates, it was, we were like 11, had stolen like a six pack of beer from his dad's like beer store or whatever. And we managed to sneak in and we drank these beers. And that was the first time that I guess I drank beer and got a little tipsy. <laughs> 12. <laughs> getting a bottle of sherry holy shit. it seems john was happy to go with a couple where he wouldn't have gone with a single man so he cheerfully agreed and off they went once there john in the van they drove him out to saddleworth moor as before hindley waited in the van while brady took john out onto the moor and sexually assaulted him before attempting to cut his throat with a serrated knife when this failed brady removed one of the boy's shoelaces and strangled him to death. According to Hindley, he came back to the car laughing and carrying the shoe, joking about the bluntness of the knife. They then went back together and buried John in a shallow pit. It's important to note here that details of these crimes come exclusively from Myra Hindley, and in the context of a bid for parole to boot. So it's not really certain that she was as hands-off as she said she was. She repeatedly claimed she had nothing to do with the torture and sexual abuse. But once again, there are reasons to have serious doubts about this, as we'll soon see. Yeah. She's like, no, 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 I just happened to wander off for those times. It's like, all right, Myra, allegedly what the f***. On the 16th of June, 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett set off for his grandmother's house in Longside, a short bus ride away from his home. It was four days after Keith's 12th birthday, and his mother recalls making sure that he was clean, presentable, and well-dressed. She warned him to be wary of strangers, as the disappearances of Pauline Reed and young John Kilbride had put the whole tight-knit community on edge. At this it's like, this is a tight-knit community, and two kids have got been gone missing. If I was in this tight-knit community, I'd be like, yo, <laughs> you are going nowhere outside by yourselves. <laughs> like, or you need, they didn't have tasers back then. I'd be like, here's an illegally acquired firearm. <laughs> like, Jesus. I mean, time passes, right? And you got to be like, well, okay with it at some point. Kids have got to go out. You know, you can't keep them locked inside forever. But damn. Keith, a bright young boy with glasses and, according to his mother, a sweet and helpful disposition, encountered Myra Hidley and Ian Brady sitting in their mini pickup. As with John, they promised to pay him for help loading and unloading some boxes as well as give him a lift to his grandmother's. According to Hindley, the fact of her being a woman and the charming manner she was able to put on made it easy to lure these kids into Brady's clutches. But this hides a darker truth. Myra Hindley and Ian Brady are often presented as monstrous psychological manipulators, intellectual affixion of evil, gifted with a Piper-like power to lure children to their deaths. I f***ing hate this. I hate it when some small aspect of this, which is basically kids trust women, and kids are trusting anyway, and it's local, and even with the disappearances, everyone assumes it to be a monst like not someone they know, and certainly not a woman. And they're like, master, you know, uh, the media or whatever is like, genius masters of manipulation it's like not master manipulation just manipulate just manipulator just taking advantage of human nature there's no master of manipulation there it's not like they've read the f***ing art of war Ma nicola uh, machiavelli's the prince and then like we have distilled the secrets of the art of war the prince and dozens of other works of uh genius and we've worked out how to lure children into a van a woman <laughs> it's like 
there's nothing special about them they're not particularly clever they're not anything it's just oh they are something psychos the simple fact is though that they lived in an overflow estate in an impoverished area of manchester where pretty much everyone knew or knew of everyone else ian brady was a well-known weirdo and myra was a well-liked daughter of a solid local family i started doing a human network map of the families involved given uh, there were some intriguing connections but i gave up quite quickly as i basically ended up with a conspiracy theory meme with all the crisscrossing bits of string and a deep sense of regret at having wasted time finding out what i already knew this was a tight-knit community they ruthlessly exploited this us and them attitude within the neighborhood comfortable that they'd be either personally known to their victims or recognized as insiders rather than outsiders in the neighborhood which to my mind makes the idea of them as sleek evil predators non-credible a more accurate characterization would be treacherous scavengers picking off the vulnerable by breaching the trust of their community yes yes so rather than being clever or anything like that they're just pieces of shocking news but that's just my opinion and my opinion as well chris what happened next was pretty much the same as for john kilbride with the exception that they photographed the body when they were done before burying it in an extremely shallow pit i don't know why but this detail has really gotten to me it feels like it adds insults or injury strangely enough that didn't get to me so much i get that taking a photo is going further and it's kind of like memorializing it for you in some sick way but i'm also like my logic brain is like doesn't make a difference doesn't make a difference still dead in a horrible way and also these people are murdering children we already know they're sickos not only did they go around murdering children they couldn't even be bothered to do things thoroughly oh put them in a proper grave i'm sorry um again they're murdering children i mean you like in terms of like how low you can go that is literally as low as it goes other than like committing some really specific child genocide which would be weird the half-assed fatal strikes the graves target selection and counter detection measures among other things i don't know why but this low effort slackness makes what they did seem even more of a desecration but maybe that's just me i don't feel i i get it chris i don't feel quite as strongly as you do about it but i get it on the 26th of December 1964, 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey was waiting for neighbors to take her to the fairgrounds at Ancoats in the northern part of Manchester City Centre. Her mother recalls in several interviews that Leslie was a sweet, well-behaved girl. Every morning she'd get up, make her bed, and help with breakfast. She was studious about her schoolwork, popular with her friends, and in her mother's words, to quote, never the sort to give anyone any cheek leslie's mother says she was doing dishes when leslie left her older brother terry recalls that he was meant to take her himself but had fallen ill and couldn't go out it seems that leslie became separated from the children she was with the last to see her alive reportedly spotting her on a gravity wall okay which is a wheel-shaped ride which pins the riders the outer rim oh through centrifugal force i know these are oh, these make me terribly sick <laughs> i uh I get I don't get travel sick like I'll be in a car I'll be in a plane no problems get get me on a boat and the water gets a little bit choppy I'm gonna be throwing up anywhere put me on one of those fairground rides it's like it's gonna be a bad time <laughs> like, I love a roller coaster but anything that spins you around like this it's like oh boy when Leslie's mother and saw other children returning from the fair she began to worry she recalls shouting out to see if any of them had seen Leslie as the afternoon wore into the evening she began asking at neighbors houses and by that night the search was on the whole family knew her absence was seriously out of character but they attempted to reassure each other that nothing bad could have happened to her terry told a document 
No, 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 everything's fine. There definitely have been other missing kids. <laughs> God, I just... Uh... Terry told a documentary team that around the time he was reassuring his mother, Leslie was being buried in a shallow grave on the moorland behind their house. For what follows, I need to apologize to Simon in advance. This is pretty rough. Rougher than what we had already? Uh... It's important, though, as it speaks to Myra Hindley's degree of culpability and agency. At various times, she's cast herself as the helpless victim of Ian Brady, a hapless, love-struck accomplice who had no part in the actual rapes or murders. These assertions have been subjected to a great deal of skepticism, largely because of the Leslie Ann Downey case. The Ancoats Fair was a popular spot for kids, and on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, it was, oh yeah... I know Americans don't have Boxing Day. It's the 26th of December. It was more than usually well attended. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were out shopping and had decided to take a turn through the fair to have a look around. At least that's the appearance they were trying to give. They probably did need to go shopping, but they also planned to cruise the fairgrounds for a victim on their way home. They came across Leslie Ann Downey wearing a tartan pattern dress with a lace collar apparently on her own. They got near Leslie and deliberately dropped some of their shopping. Leslie, being a genuinely kind person, helped them pick it back up. They got to talking, and Myra Hindley asked the little girl to help them take the shopping to their car, a mini-traveler now, as they'd traded in their pickup, and then back to their home on Wardlebrook Avenue. Leslie agreed. According to Myra, she felt reassured by her being a woman. They took her back to Wardlebrook Avenue, Myra's grandmother's house, where she was now living with Brady. They forced Leslie to strip, gagged her, bound her, and took a series of pictures of the naked child in bondage poses. Just a reminder, because um, I made a note of how old she was, just in case you've forgotten, she's f***ing ten. It seems clear they also raped her. Byra doesn't admit to this, but hints dropped in a 1985 confession indicate that this was highly probable. Oh god, this was in the 1960s and the confession happened in 1985? Oh god, how long is this going to go on for? Not only did they take photographs, they also taped much of the process, producing a 13-minute audio recording of the torture, topped and tailed with Christmas songs and country music. Hindley claims she left the room, and when she came back, the child was bleeding. Oh yeah, alright, you just happened to leave, did you? So Ian instructed her to run a bath. Hindley claims that when she came back from running the bath, Leslie Ann Downey was dead. The tape, however, clearly shows Hindley barking instructions at the poor girl, an active participant, not just in the abduction, but in the sexual abuse. It's for this reason that many people, including this humble author, believe that Myra Hindley had at least as much agency and culpability in these crimes as her partner, Ian Brady. Um, how, how would I phrase this to express my opinion? while not legally exposing myself. Well, in my opinion, allegedly, mm -hmm, I say that's f***ing right. <laughs> allegedly, in my opinion, Jesus. While Her Majesty's government didn't see it fit to provide me with police or court records, I was able to find this recording, as well as a full transcript from multiple independent sources for verification. Oh my god, did you listen to that, Chris, you poor, poor man. Leaving aside the fact that I fervently wish I hadn't, it's abundantly clear that Myra Hindley was a prime mover in this murder at the very least, allegedly. She repeatedly snaps at the child to put her gag back on and yells at her to shut up, all while the child screams and cries out for her mother and father. I... I don't like that things like this exist. Have you guys heard? There's, I'm not going to say what it's called, because I don't want anyone to look this up. And I've not done it, and I have no desire to do it, but I know it exists. And it's a series of videos which start off fairly mild. Like, I don't know for what would be an example, like someone getting cut with a knife. And then they proceed over like 20-something videos to become more and more horrifically graphic. And apparently it just gets f***ing insane. And some of it's fake, apparently. But, and I'm just like, I don't like the fact that something like that exists. 
it really i don't know um even though i've been doing this true crime podcast for so long kind of like i think most people i think most people are kind of neutral not good or bad but i don't think there's like that many bad people and then you just hear something like this and you're like yeah but the bad ones are real bad and i just don't like it at all in her later confession, Myra Hindley claims that the murder of Leslie Ann was a tipping point for her when she finally came to realise just how wrong she'd been to help Brady. I call bullshit. The tape condemns her, not just in my mind, but in the minds of the jury, the police, and unsurprisingly Leslie's mother, all of whom heard all or part of it. Oh wait, she's been convicted by a jury of this specifically? Then uh, we don't need to be so uh, couchy of our words. Anyway, however Leslie was killed, killed she was, and her body was taken to Saddleworth Moor and buried naked in a shallow grave with her clothing at her feet. The murder is seen as the peak of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's career, and not just because of its essential horror. Here we have a pair of murderers who are confident in their MO. They've refined their targeting mechanisms, and their lure to capture technique appears smooth and efficient. There's also an increase in confidence as well. They're not sneaking away to secluded, quiet places on the moors. They take the victim to their own home. The photography and audio recording also speaks to greater confidence as well as greater premeditation. This is the mid-60s, remember, and taking indoor photographs requires a good deal of preparation, and making an audio recording for anyone who's not a media professional is at this time not something which could be done lightly or on the spur of the moment. The equipment involved was clunky and demanding in terms of the technical capability required of the operator. At several points during the tape, we can hear a triplet of rhythmic cracking sounds. Decades later, Brady explains that this sound was him adjusting the legs of a camera tripod. Jesus. It's clear that, contrary to their confessions, this was a carefully planned and executed sequence of events, though I note they still could be bothered with digging a proper grave, a detail which continues to sicken and infuriate me for reasons I can't explain. I'm sickened and, infur and furious about this, but not for this reason. I don't- this is f***ed up. Somewhat unusually, nearly a year went by before they killed again. As a general rule, the gaps between serial murders don't widen, they narrow. I know there's a lot of exceptions to this, BTK springs to mind, but it is still consistent enough that it's a general rule. We do have some undated recollections of people who claim to have been approached by Hindley when they were children. Some of these accounts seem very credible, even with the potential tainting of memory and evidence by notoriety and the passage of time. So it's possible that 1965 was a year of failed attempts for them. At any rate, on the 6th of October 1965, Ian Brady beat poor Edward Evans to death with an axe in the living room of 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, the place where we started this tale. Evans has been described as the lost victim of this saga, and it's true that his murder hasn't received nearly as much attention as the others. It's possible that this has something to do with his age. A 17-year-old male wasn't considered a child at the time. The media characterization of this story feels like an ultra-dark Hansel and Gretel with no happy ending, and there's a lot of work out there saying Evans was practically ignored because he didn't fit this narrative. Then there's the fact that at the time of the murder and subsequent arrests, nobody could have known this had anything to do with the missing children. Only two newspapers reported on it at the time, one local and one national. The national one being The Guardian, presumably because it started life as The Manchester Guardian and retained an interest in Manchester happenings. The murder itself wasn't that interesting either. There didn't really seem to be an angle, no clear reason for the story to stand out against all the other rapes and murders which crossed the desks of crime reporters. As for press reporting, after the crimes were linked, some have suggested the tabloid press was bigoted about Evans' possible homosexuality. I agree with Dr. Field, however, who assesses that they didn't want to further traumatize his family. Homosexuality was still illegal at the time, and Field highlights several indications that the dailies were disinclined to sling mud at a victim. Well, 
It's a nice bit of respect there from the press. This might seem surprisingly decent for the tabloid press, it does, but their reactions to these crimes were actually quite complex and, in some cases, uncharacteristically sensitive. Investigation and Trial I know I said at the start there wasn't really an upside to the story, and I do stick by that. One brighter spot, though, is the performance of the police like it. From the moment of Brady's arrest right through to the present day, multiple investigations have been conducted, and all of them feature some exemplary police work. Of course, there was some of the usual silliness associated with coppering in the 60s, but for the most part, the police work was and is exemplary. Of course, when they first arrested Brady, they had no inkling of any connection to the missing children. They'd been called out to a house where violence had been reported and they found a dead body and a strong suspect. They might reasonably have decided that was job done. I think I'd be right in saying that many less motivated police would have called it a day and shunted it on to the prosecutors. Not so the Greater Manchester Police. The circumstances of the murder, especially the way in which the body was prepared for disposal and the carefully written elaborate disposal plan found in Brady's wallet, writing down his crimes there, Brady. Just remember it, mate, it's not that complicated. Suggested this might not be the only killing. Added to this, with the disturbingly calm demeanor of Ian Brady, well-spoken, thoughtful, and carefully guarded in everything he said, as well as the frankly weird and emotionless behavior of Myra Hindley, who was questioned for four days before also being arrested. The cops sensed something was off, so they continued hammering David Smith for more details, questioning Brady and Hindley, and conducting a painstaking search of the house and effects. Oh, David Smith is the friend from right back at the start, right, who was there as well, who the one who went to the police with this. Brady, who was described by the police as the sort of man who couldn't go on a picnic without first developing a three-page plan, had kept a journal or scrapbook of sorts in which he'd written the name John Kilbride next to a doodle of someone's face. This led Detective Talbot, the one who dressed as a baker to get access into the house, to call DCI Joe Muncy, who was SIO on the John Kilbride inquiry. He'd been so dogged in his pursuit of the case, working it at all hours and frequently updating the boy's family, that officers at his station called John Kilbride Muncie's lad. DCI Terrell Manchester CID was looking for a missing girl, Leslie Ann Downey, and he showed up, showing an exemplary adherence to due diligence. These guys sound awesome. Like, this is the sort of detective who, if something happens to you, you're just like, he shows up and he's emotionally involved, he's hunting it, he's working these crazy hours because he's like, fuck you, I'm gonna fucking get you. I'm like, this is the guy from the movies, and I love it. You legend. What's his name? Let's give him a shout-out again. Joe Muncy. Legend. Not the only legend from the police here, though. Lots of legendary police. I like it. So Inspector Talbot's inquiry was well-coordinated across jurisdictions and at a very early stage because keen and motivated investigators, including Talbot himself, had all decided to follow up every lead, however slim, and had now converged into an effective team love it all. The police found a large collection of photographs. Hindley and Baker were keen amateur photographers, and not just in the pursuit of snuffborn. They seemed to be quite dedicated to the art form for its own sake. Some of these photos would at the time be considered risque or even pornographic, though they're pretty tame to our modern eyes. A bunch of them, however, were just flat-out weird. They showed Myra Hindley, Ian Brady, or both, sometimes with Myra's dog Puppet, in various poses on completely unremarkable patches of moorlands. Oh, God. Oh, God, no. 
Oh, God. Uh, they're not posing in just on top of where the victims are buried, are they? DCI Muncie was fascinated by these photos and had extra copies printed out. Of all the officers involved, he was the most convinced that the pair were multiple murderers, and he spent hours combing the moors with his unfortunate subordinates, but to no avail. David Smith also spilled some details about having been asked to return any dodgy books to Brady, who then locked those books up in two suitcases. He didn't know where the cases were, but in separate interviews, he told police that Baker, quote, had a thing for railway stations. Police ordered a search of left luggage areas of every station in the city, and transport police soon found them in Manchester Central Station. So hats off to them for unusually efficient coordination. Wait, what are these dodgy books? Personally, I would have just looked in Central first, given that shortly after Dave saw the suitcases, Brady and Hindley had picked up Edward Evans there, but you can't fault them for being thorough. Inside the suitcases was a cornucopia of dark artifacts. There were books on sexual sadism, pornographic magazines, a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and sundry random items and photographs. There were also nine photographs of Leslie and Downey, bound, gagged, naked, and posed on a bed, as well as the 13-minute audio tape, which, when they played it, had some seasoned detectives running out of the room and others in tears yeah yeah this was of course the tape of poor leslie being tortured brady's explained 10 years old a 10 year old girl Brady's explanation of the photos and tape recording of Leslie was that the two men brought the child to their flat and then taken her away again still alive Hindley <laughs> dude that was the best you could come up with you clown hindley didn't say much of anything claiming to have merely provided logistical and moral support while baker did his thing this was part of a concerted plan between the two of them baker had from the outset advised hindley to say as little as possible and he was prepared to take the weight of whatever charges might be laid and was determined to shield her from prosecution as best he could and he did he kept his silence about hindley's involvement for more than 20 years in the meantime investigators had noted that the corpse disposal plan brady had kept in his wallet involved burying the body on saddleworth moor more than 150 officers were dispatched to search the moor proceeding in what australians call an emu bob that being a loose line abreast designed to cover large patches of ground as quickly as possible the police used tamping rods long canes or steel poles which they pushed down into the earth and then sniffed looking for the smell of decay it was a huge area of ground to cover, and they were wrapping up for the day when PC Bob Spears decided to nip off for a quick pee. By the time it was done, most of the coppers were already back on the buses and were yelling at him to hurry up so they could go to the pub. As he hurried back, he happened to look down into a small depression in the earth and saw what he thought was a sharp bone sticking out. He called over to his seniors, and they uncovered a child's body, half-preserved by Pete. They initially thought they'd found a small boy, and Anne Downey, Leslie's mother, who was watching the search from behind the barricade, was repeatedly reassured that it wasn't her daughter. That is, until they found the clothes buried at her feet. This made it much worse later, when she had to identify her daughter's dress. And later still, when the police... They played her excerpts of the tape. Oh my god, I have to move on because all I think about is my own kids. Let's just move on quickly. And later still, when the police played our experts of the tape, which they agonized over cutting and recutting in a futile effort to make it more traumatic, one can only imagine how much of a bad day that had to be for all involved. The police photographer Ray Gelder noticed when he was taking the crime scene photos that the photographs matched pretty near exactly with those strange pictures of the pair on seemingly random patches of moorland. Police surmised these must be murder souvenirs of sort, perhaps pictures of grave sites, as DC Muncie had suggested earlier. One photograph in particular appeared 
at first glance to show Hindley with the dog puppet in her arms apparently looking down at him. Closer examination, however, revealed that what she was really looking at was the ground. Oh my god, that is so f***ing creepy. I'm looking at the photo now, it's in my script. Oh! Oh, oh god. I, if this was an American one, I'd be at this point being like, get him in the chair, get him in the chair! And all I know in the UK is we don't have death penalty. <laughs> and I, I never thought like I'd be like one of these people where it's like, man, these people f***ing deserve it. They deserve it. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to f you little shit. About a week after the searches that uncovered Leslie's body in the suitcases, DC Macheda and DI Chaddock went back out to the moor with the photograph. They had been helped in this process by a child who had been friendly with the couple in the past, Pat Hodges. Pat was the daughter of a near neighbor of the pair and had regularly gone for picnics on the moor with Hindley and Brady. Pat showed the police the couple's favorite spots, which helped our two detectives narrow down where they should be trying to match their photograph. Eventually, Mercedes found the spots and went through the grim ritual of using the tampon rod to discover the smell of decay. When they dug down, they found a shoe and they found the body of John Kilbride. John's mother was able to identify her son's shoe and clothing as the shoe had recently been repaired and she had personally mended most of the clothing. In the meantime, Detective Ian Farley had found the left luggage ticket corresponding to the suitcases in the back of Myra Hindley's prayer book. Hindley had a lifelong fascination with Catholicism and investigators had found a way to match markings on the bedheads in the Leslie Ann Downey pictures with those on the bed in the Waterbrook Avenue house. The couple continued to stonewall the police, however. Myra Hindley was especially unemotional with officers interviewing her, incredulous at how calm she was. During one interview, she was served her lunch with a photo of John Kilbride on top of it. She reacted angrily, claiming that this was unfair, and also complained about it in letters home to her mother, in which she also asked for a hair dye as her roots were showing, and she didn't want to go to court unkempt. The prison didn't allow prisoners to bleach or dye their hair for obvious reasons, so the famous photograph of Hindley with her roots showing became an iconic image of female evil. The only other time she showed emotion was when investigators attempting to date the moorland photographs by the age of her dog Poppet had to put the animal under general anesthetic to examine its teeth. For some reason, the dog never woke up again, and Hindley was furious, claiming they'd murdered her dog out of spite. Both Hindley and Brady were charged with the murders of Edward Evans, John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downey, and by this time, public interest in the case was at fever pitch. I just remember there's something like a full-life sentence I think you can get where you go to prison and there's no parole, but it's super rare. But these people better get this shit, and they better go to horrible prison. Special security screens needed to be installed for the length of the 14-day trial. They both pleaded not guilty, Brady only admitting to hitting Evans with an axe in a vain attempt to run his defense on a post-mortem finding which said that strangulation had accelerated the cause of death. Hindley denied being involved in the murder of Leslie Ann, claiming that she'd been downstairs running a bath despite the tape being played in court and senior police officers identifying both of their voices. In fact, neither of them properly confessed to any of the murders. Unsurprisingly, it only took the jury two hours to come back with a collection of guilty verdicts. Brady was found guilty of all three murders, whereas Hindley was convicted of two, being found not guilty of murdering John Kilbride. She was, however, convicted of harboring Ian Brady in the knowledge that it murdered him. During the time they'd been in custody and on trial, an act to abolish the death penalty had come into force, so Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were given three concurrent life sentences. Okay, so three in a row. Oh, it's got to be dis- it got to be pretty disappointing that the death penalty was abolished just at this time. To be like, can't cut. Can't, can't, it's 
like with Brexit. Can't we extend it just a little bit? Look, there's a special case. <laughs> we want these guys to die. Yes, come on. Brady in Durham and Hindley at Holloway. The judge made it clear, in his opinion from the bench, that he thought it a wretched misfortune that he could not sentence them to hang. <laughs> legend the judge is like i'm uh, pretty disappointed that we recently got rid of the death penalty because oh boy would i be on that so hard and it would be hanging because that's how long ago it was like what the uh, 60s okay so there was the confessions later i guess because i know the 80s came into it as well but it's like oh boy it would be the i'm with the i'm with judgy on this one aftermath and confessions Initially, the British press had some difficulty with the case, and in particular, with Myra Hindley. Tabloids like The Mirror published short, factual accounts, whereas the Daily Mail basically ignored it. The Daily Chronicle, which was struggling financially, plastered Hindley and Baker over a series of salacious front pages and full-page spreads, but they were the exception. According to Dr. Field, the tabloids at the time were highly conscious of their role as a voice for the ordinary people, an ideology which persists to this day, but also as family newspapers, i.e. producers of content which was morally suitable for all ages. Much of the technical language around paedophilia we're very familiar with today wasn't in general use at the time, and it's fascinating to look through archived articles and see the range of euphemisms used for child sexual abuse. Some of them are quite clear. Interfered with leaves little room for misinterpretation. A great many others, though, are far from being clear, and it's easy to believe that many readers may have missed the fact that scandalized was code for rape. Really? No, that would go right. I mean, I think I'd probably be able to get it from context clues, but I would have no idea otherwise. Gender stereotypes were much more forceful and uniform in those days as well, and the tabloid press had real trouble initially finding a way to articulate the reality of a female child murderer in a way which also stayed within family-friendly bounds. I don't think anything about child murder, whether man or woman, is family-friendly. <laughs> Jesus. At one point during the trial, the prosecutor asked Hindley how she could have so abandoned her, quote, duty as a woman to treat a female child or any other child with care. Hindley replied, I should have done, but I didn't. I have no defense to that. So the majority of the tabloids in the lead-up to the trial seemed to have solved this problem by talking about other things. There was quite a lot to talk about. Over this whole period, the Rhodesia crisis, where Rhodesia, now Kenya, unilaterally left the British Empire, was going on. Am I insane? <laughs> uh, hold on, I just have to Google something. Nah, yeah, I knew this. Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. Kenya's uh, British East Africa. Yeah, I don't know if that's um chris's error or whether he saw someone made an error in a paper and he pulled that the empire loving right-wing press competed with the empire hating left-wing tabloids to stoke the public's emotions about the crumbling of british international power there's also the fact that as loose as the british press can be they are still afraid of the courts and contempt of court laws kept many of the tabloids from publishing more than an editorial or two after the trial however all bets were off and most of the tabloids published stories sensationalizing myra hindley as well as highlighting the stories of the grieving mothers. The major broadsheets had no such qualms about reporting the case. They felt their audience was sophisticated enough to deal with the manifold issues which it surfaced. When the transcript of the Leslie Ann Downey tape became available, most of the tabs either didn't print it or printed heavily redacted versions. The Times, however, bastion of the black bowler hat and umbrella crowd, published the transcript in full, along with the detailed commentary of the evils of the permissive society. 
Of course, tabloids are going to tabloid, and it did emerge in the trial that the News of the World had paid a thousand pounds for David Smith's testimony, as well as putting him up in a hotel for the duration of the trial and paying for him and his wife Maureen to go on holiday. The scandal News of the World, man. <laughs> Piece of shit, man. Piece of shit. Now, oh no, they don't exist anymore. What a shame. I, I don't know. I am. <laughs> the news of the world and the phone hacking scandal. I don't know if this is probably just like super British, but oh my God. Alleged, in, in my opinion, such a piece of shit. The scandal this kicked up meant that the paper couldn't actually use much of what they paid for, and the press was voluntold to restrain from its penchant for checkbook journalism, which it did by adopting a new code of conduct. I know Chris is going with this one. This clearly didn't include anything about phone hacking, but it did have a slight restraining effect, arguably helping to prevent the whole popular press in the UK going the same way as the yellow press in the USA. Now, it's worth talking a bit about this permissive society. From the 50s onwards, quite a few controls on media and public morality were removed from British law. This reflected a broader movement across the Western world, led by the USA's frequent turbulent relationship with itself. Remember, remember, this was the time of the hippie movement, free love and new age philosophy and so on. And in the UK, a battle was going on for the soul of the nation. At least, that's what the combatants thought at the time. Mass publishing drove much of this phenomenon, with relatively cheap paperback editions of specialist texts, like a 12-volume edition of the works of the Marquis de Sade showing up in bookstores and libraries. On the back of this, law around the sale of pornography and what actually consisted pornography were significantly liberalized. What all of this amounted to was a general then rapid removal of many of the paternalistic controls which centuries of monarchy and Christianity had placed over the British people. Ian Brady's literary tastes formed a major pillar of the prosecution's arguments, as he was known to be interested in texts related to fascism and sexual sadism, which a lower-middle-class youth from the north of England simply couldn't have accessed in the non-permissive society of the past. The press latched on to this as an explanation for the crimes. The reason for this seems to be in the unremarkable backgrounds of the two killers. Ian Brady was a juvenile delinquent, but not in any particularly serious way, and he was brought up from a very young age in a kind and caring adoptive family. Brady was the eternal outsider, and much was made of this by those that knew him at the time. They used 2020 hindsight to say that his differences in dress and behavior obviously added up to him becoming a sadistic child rapist. Again, it's like this is the classic bullshit where it's like someone's a bit weird and they turned out to be a child murderer, therefore all child murderers dress weird. It's just stupid logic. And also the worst ones are where people use it as an excuse, like, oh no, he became a child murderer because he was abused as a child. And it's like, well, very sad for him that he was abused as a child, but also it's not a f***ing excuse. And this guy wasn't even, he's just a f***ing monster. In truth, though, he just seems to have been a pretty typical adolescent edgelord. Hindley grew up in a tight, multi-generational family and did well at school despite frequent truancy. She failed to pass her tertiary entrance exams, though... Okay, so I guess that's university entrance exams? They, those exist? Seemingly through lack of interest and went on to become a typist, first for a firm which was about to go under, and then for the same company as Brady, which is where she first met him. The thing to point out here is that their biographies are quite banal, which is why I haven't really focused on them. Certainly, Hindley would go on to make claims of violent abuse at the hands of her father, but this was decades after the crimes, and she is the sole source for these tales. 
which we'll deal with later. Anyway, this lack of killer backstory presented a problem for the press and also for some criminologists. So many of them latched onto the idea that the general moral decay of the Western world was what caused these two young people to go off the rails. What's wrong with just people being f***ing psychos? Like, there are people who, you know, they're, they're the natural psychopaths. They're not made. They're just born. The theory was that if their minds hadn't been polluted by the freely available pornography and increasingly relaxed morality of the permissive society, they wouldn't have committed those crimes. This picture doesn't really conform with reality, though. For a start, the books Ian Brody was reading weren't as freely available as the press made out. Brody spent a startlingly high proportion of his salary to get them, so he didn't just happen on cheap and easy-to-find texts. He expended significant effort and funds to get them. So he wasn't a hapless victim of moral pollution, but rather a motivated seeker of it. There's a fair amount of class prejudice in the representation of Brady as being hopelessly muddled by dangerous books, the idea being that only Oxbridge types are equipped to process complex literature. When we track their development as murderers, it seems pretty clear that they both just wanted to kill some people. Their own explanations for this are pretty unsatisfactory, which leads us to the somewhat unsatisfactory conclusion that they were, just for apparently no good reason, profoundly evil. Yeah, just natural psychopaths. That's it. This f***ing sucks. These people exist. Ugh. The question of Myra Hindley's role in all of this came under heavy scrutiny as well. One of the more popular views of Hindley is that she was a sort of Pygmalion figure, an innocent, untutored girl shaped by contact with a more sophisticated and older male. This is another one of those things where it's like... Um, like the genius killers, the Leopold and Loeb. The pe try, people try and make something interesting when there's nothing there. She was bright. She just didn't pass her university entrance exam because she didn't try. Uh, she worked as a typist for a company. Like, she's not stupid. Uh, and I hate people coming up with these, like, fake interest pieces. When it's just like, no, nah, she's a piece of we don't need to make up a cool story. There's some evidence for this in that Hindley changed her appearance shortly after meeting Brady, adopting a more risque style of dress and dyeing her hair blonde. By the time of her arrest, she was self-consciously imitating the looks of Irma Grease, the beast of Belson, an infamous Nazi whom Simon has definitely done a biographics episode on, and which was incidentally one of the first Factboy videos that I ever watched. Oh my, there we go. That's how Chris found out about me. Love it. I mean, that video is horrific. I still remember it. I thought she was the Beast of Buchenwald. Isn't that what she was called? Beast of Belson? Beast of Buchenwald? Oh god, I don't remember. This view isn't corroborated by her own testimony at the time, however. In her trial testimony, she was given frequent opportunities by both the prosecution and defense to shift the majority of responsibility onto Baker. Baker had later admitted to deliberately propagating this narrative in his own testimony as he, quote, wanted to help the girl. So when Hindley was tried, the attorney general and her own counsel frequently tried to lead her down the path of a sort of Nuremberg defense, as in, I was just following orders, but she steadfastly refused. Quote, I made all my decisions. People go through several stages in their life. After discussions, they change their minds. Ian never made me do anything I didn't want to do. That's what she said to police on duty on the day of Brady's arrest, and it was a line she stuck to throughout her trial. As well as culture wars about public morality and whether or not homosexuals and perverts were going to end civilization by turning everyone into some version of Hindley and Brady, the case it sounds so silly. Like, I know I shouldn't be laughing, but back in the day, people were like, actually worried about this. There was debate about this. And today it's just like, <laughs> what are you up to, fast people? Come on. The case did kick off a decades-long debate about the death penalty, life sentences, and whether or not Myra Hindley should be released. No, she should never be released. Good lord, what are you debating?
Now, I know I said their trial coincided with the abolition of the death penalty, but English law is never quite so clean-cut. It is, in fact, seriously weird. The UK's abolition of capital punishment should be viewed more as a protracted and messy divorce. In the 1700s, practically every crime was a capital crime, the usual thing being to sentence petty criminals to death, and then have the sentence commuted to life or transportation by the crown. Over the years, the range of capital crimes was gradually narrowed, with the most significant narrowing happening around the time corporal punishment was also phased out. By the time Hindley and Bray... <laughs> corporal punishment. Like, while on the show after, like, hang on! Corporal punishment is insane. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be torturing people. Well, maybe we could torture these people. Maybe we could film their execution and sell it on the internet. By the time Hindley and Brady came to trial, it was still possible to be hanged for crimes like treason and arson in royal dockyards. <laughs> okay. I remember, yeah, treason was still a capital offense until, like, it was in the late 90s. There was some act that I can't remember the name of that finally, like, no one had been executed for treason in a very long time. Um, but it was still on the books. And then there was some act that was just like, and also will abolish treason, death penalty for treason. <laughs> and I assume arson in royal dockyards. I didn't know that one. But the death sentence for murder was abolished. This seems to have led to some misunderstanding. So when the judge sentenced Hindley to life imprisonment, he was then supposed to set a tariff. Or in other words, how many years this actually meant. When the lawyers pointed out he hadn't done so, asking him after the trial what tariff he intended, he answered with the less than helpful, I meant life. Uh, to me, that is not less than helpful. It's like life means life, bro. It's like when she, how long is she in prison for? I said life, didn't I? The entirety of her life. She will die in prison where she belongs. Sorry, both of them, obviously. I don't know why I said she. While this may seem clear to us, it didn't really answer the question from a legal perspective. Oh, okay. God damn it. <laughs> Judge, just be more specific. <laughs> Until she's dead. Did he mean life without the possibility of parole, the conventional life as 25 years imprisonment, or something else entirely? The looseness around life sentences also affected the craze, who went on trial just a few years later and were given a tariff of 30 years, which was considered by many to be malicious and politically motivated. They were also the craze. Maybe they deserved to go to prison for a long time, because they were the craze. So Hindley was sent to prison for an indeterminate period of time, which some argued constituted cruel and unusual punishments. You might think, who cares, given it's Myra Hindley we're talking about here. Yeah, but justice needs to be certain. Let's just be certain. Forever! But the argument wasn't always about her. She was more often used as a case study in how justice sisters might fail to deliver appropriate justice to any UK citizen. I agree, this is not about her. That's about uh, certainty of the law, certainty of punishment, and it needs to be certain. And in this case, certainly forever. Have I banged that home enough? You guys aware of my opinion? <laughs> you don't have a different opinion, right? <laughs> Surely not. This isn't someone who gets rehabilitated. Pop off in the comments if you think otherwise. Idiot. <laughs> By 1985, Hindley was constantly applying for parole because as far as she can make out, this was an option according to the loose and murky legal understanding of life sentences. This was not an issue for Brady, as he'd been diagnosed as a schizophrenic and a psychopath and moved to Ashworth, a mental institution where parole isn't really a thing. Yeah, we've mentioned this before. Like, I remember, this was one thing I remember learning at university, was like, that idea of pleading insanity, right? Getting out of a crime by being like, no, 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 I'm insane. Uh, I did the crime because I'm, ins I'm insane. And then I remember learning, oh yeah, people, why do people do that? Because there's no parole from an insane asylum. Like you can be, is it called sectioned? You get taken away and it's like, unless you're sane, you're never leaving. 
and they won't ever find you sane, so you are never leaving. There's no chance of parole. You're in there forever. In the meantime, Hidley had converted to Catholicism, had a lesbian relationship with one of her prison guards who assisted her in a failed escape attempt, and gathered a small circle of supporters, including serial do-gooder Lord Longford, who would take her case to the House of Lords. Lord Longford sounds like a prick. Daily Mail investigative journalist Fred Harrison had been speaking with the pair as he was working on a book when Baker unexpectedly offered to confess in exchange for the means to commit suicide. Harrison took this to the police, who never stopped looking for the two missing kids. And so it was that DCI Peter Topping kicked off the second investigation into the Moore's murders. Over multiple interviews with Brady, both Topping and Harrison would receive testimony about Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Brady refused to speak about any of the other murders and also continually put impossible conditions on his confession, more frequently related to demands he either be killed or allowed to kill himself. For this and other reasons, Brady's testimony was pretty unhelpful. From excerpts I was able to access, it seems he spent most of his time explaining his philosophy and worldview. In view of this, Tommy went to see Myra Hindley to tell her Brady was talking. People close to Myra had been urging her to confess for some time, saying she had no possible hope of release without a confession and expression of remorse. When Topping approached her, she was furious Brady was talking. At the same time, the Home Secretary, basically the Minister for Justice and Home Affairs, had the power to determine life sentence tariffs. Leaving aside the weirdness of a politician having the power to reach past a judge and change a sentence yeah i had no idea that was possible i assume it's not possible anymore that's bizarre he's also not like uh lord justice what's the the oh my god simon your britishness is fading what what's it called the guy the 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 guys in charge of all the legal stuff oh my god it's embarrassing there's a dude there's a politician he's like lot like justice secretary something like that something like that right this should be the separation of powers, though. That dude shouldn't be able to do anything with, like, courts and sentencing, let alone the Home Secretary. They were also under no obligation to inform the prisoner of their decision. Hindley's tariff was increased and then set as whole of life by a succession of Home Secretaries, reportedly owing to massive public outcry whenever it looked like she might be released. And on this first occasion, she didn't actually find out about it until two years after the decision. That doesn't seem fair. She should definitely be told because it would also be very satisfying like they've changed your sentence um you're gonna be getting out never nah, nah, ah, ah, ah. you like what i did there i led with the like you're gonna get out and then no you're never gonna get out because you're myra hindley when brady started talking hindley clearly thought she needed to take control of the narrative mistakenly believing that she had a shot at parole hindley elected to write down much of her confession while also having multiple interviews with topping and harrison much of what she said isn't publicly available, but a fair amount is, and the overall tendency is that she paints a much softer, more compassionate portrait of herself. What a surprise, seeing that she's aiming for parole and all. At about this time, she had received the second of two letters from Winnie Johnson, mother of Keith Bennett, pleading with her to help find her son's body. Myra cited this letter as her main reason for finally coming clean. By her account, she had had a violent and abusive childhood, which she then traded in for a violent and abusive partner who had coerced, raped, beaten, and blackmailed her into complicity with the murders. DCI Topping described her extremely long confession as, to quote, a very well-worked-out performance. I'm inclined to agree 
with this assessment, most of it reads like a poor man's David Copperfield. As she outlines her formative influences and upbringing, as well as her relationship with Brady, she seems to be casting herself as the tragic heroine of a middle-brow literary novel. Some incidents, like the time she claims her PTSD-suffering ex-paratrooper father forced her to confront and beat down her own bully, reads so much like fiction that if I didn't know her father was actually in the Paris and fought in Africa, I would have thought she fabricated it all out of whole cloth. Unlike other killers we've studied on Cash Crim, there isn't a whisper of anything but grinding urban poverty in her background. That is, until she started claiming to have been abused, at which point multiple sources, eager to clutch at some sort of explanation for her evil, repeated her claims, creating a frequency bias effect which makes them look as if they're verifiably true. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like someone someone it's like what happens on the internet someone posts a fact that they just made up and then someone else copies that fact and then posts it and then someone puts it in a youtube video and someone does a podcast about it and then everyone's like must be fact where it's not true there's that famous example that is it about people writing down their goals or something and there was like a harvard study shows that people who write down their goals are like three times more likely to achieve their goals and you know this gets bandied around like every self-help book from like here to Timbuktu and it's like is there actually a study and then you look at the odds it's like well I got it from that guy and this guy got it from that guy and it's like wait no I thought I got it from you and there is no study this is like writing down your goals (laughs) just go do your goals just go do it Nobody else, not the police, independent researchers, or this author has been able to verify her account of a violent past. It's during this confession that she, for the first time, begins claiming that Ian Brody groomed and violently coerced her. She makes much of the fact that he was five years older than her, more widely read, and more worldly wise. She casts herself as smitten from the outset, desperate to escape the grey world of her existence with this handsome and exotic for Manchester man. And for all we know, it might be true. I highly doubt it, as the empirical, provably aspects of her participation in the murders seem to point in exactly the opposite direction. Myra was involved in the planning, obtained vehicles and photographic equipment for the murders, knowingly lured children into Brady's clutches, and actively assisted on tape in the sexual exploitation of a child. When I started this journey, I was open to the idea Myra Hindley might be a corrupted innocent rehabilitated by prison, but the more I find out, much of it directly from her testimony, the more this view becomes impossible for me to believe. Regardless of her status as victim or perpetrator, Hindley did provide significant assistance to the police. As well as confessing to all the murders, she also agreed to help find the remaining two bodies. DCI Topping arranged to have her taken to the moors, but this turned out disastrously. For reasons best known to himself, he decided to close off a huge area of moorland, plus a few access roads, and fly Hindley in by helicopter. Unsurprisingly, the tabloids, who thought she might be released and were running a furiously shrill campaign to prevent this, got wind of what was happening and sent hordes of reporters and news choppers out to the moor. Hindley, who'd been locked up for 20 years by this point, was confused by her fading memory, topographical changes, and all the helicopters flying around and was unable to pinpoint any grave sites. Later, Topping brought her out again under calmer circumstances, but still with no luck. The trips to the moors seemed to have jogged her memory, however, and she was able to recall seeing the outlines of rocks against the sky when they buried Pauline Reed. This combined with a fresh examination of the souvenir photographs and some very intelligent triangulation based on the other graves allowed police to unearth Pauline's body, which was remarkably well preserved. DCI Topping recalls the vivid blue of her coat and the gold lettering on the insides of her brand new white court shoes. These were taken to her mother, Joanne, who on that day lost all hope. 
Not only had she not believed that Myra, a family friend, was involved in her daughter's murder, she'd never really accepted that she was dead to quote, I just thought she was about somewhere. She said to Channel 5 documentary team as she explained that on the way back home from work, she would search the streets for Pauline or hurriedly get off the bus whenever she thought she'd seen her in the street. Myra Hindley wasn't able to locate the area where they'd buried Keith Bennett as the topography had changed significantly and to this day his body's never been found. Myra Hindley kept insisting she was reformed, no threat to society and should be released right up until her death in prison in 2012. She smoked 40 cigarettes a day and died of heart failure associated with respiratory dysfunction. She smoked cigarettes, 40 cigarettes a day in prison. Why are you getting cigarettes in prison? I mean, I'm not against cigarettes in prison, but I'm against people smoking two packs a day in prison. What the f***? Ian Brady was also taken out to the moor, but his memory doesn't seem to have been as sharp as Hindley's as he wasn't able to help in any way. Or possibly, he never meant to and was just angling for a day out. Of the two, though, Brady was the one who was actually mentally ill. He attempted to starve himself to death several times, but given he was in a mental institution, he had no right to refuse treatment and was force-fed via tube. He tried to get himself transferred to a Scottish prison so he could kill himself there, but the fact that he made this clear in his application meant that that was never going to happen. Brady died in prison in 2017 at the age of 79, uh, mental institution, no, he wasn't in prison, um, from a condition unrelated to his starvation attempts, and so ended the lives of two of England's most hated killers. Interest in the case has never really faded, and apart from all the pain and suffering they caused, probably the most tangible legacy of the Moore's murders was the clarification of the law around life sentences and the eventual removal of the Home Secretary's power to arbitrarily adjust sentencing. I'd like to end today by saying something positive, but it's quite difficult. I guess the good part is that some great policing managed to get them locked up and to find almost all of the victims, but nothing can repair the gaping holes they tore in so many lives or the stain they left on the UK's national memory. Except, perhaps, the passage of time. Dismembered Appendices Number one, I never got round to re-explaining why there were firearms in the house at Wardlebrook Avenue. As it turns out, Brady's original plan was to rob banks, so he had Myra, who is a clean skin, join a rifle club. She tried and failed to get into a pistol club, but was able to purchase some weapons from the other members before she stopped attending. He also claimed their year of no murders was owing to a change in focus to planning robberies again, but this is doubtful. Number two, while in prison, Ian Brody wrote a book called The Gates of Janus in 2001, which was an analysis of serial murderers. Janus is the two-faced Roman god of war and state, and the Janus Gate in Rome was opened when they were at war, so it seems Brady knew his classics, despite not having gone to Oxford. It was published by an underground press and caused outrage when the public found out about it. The book received mixed reviews, mostly because it was garbage. Number three, in trying to compress about 60 years' worth of material into a manageable script, I've obviously left some of the details out. What I most regret is the police officers I've left out of this account, namely Detectives Ian Fairley, Tom McVitie, and Pat Clayton, who, among others, were instrumental in bringing the Moore's murderers to justice. Number four, David Smith, whose call to the police ended the run of murders, had a very rough ride. As a troubled youth from the outset, he had multiple juvenile convictions for violence. According to Hindley, they committed the murder in front of him because Baker wanted him to join the team, and Hindley claimed he was the chief accomplice in Evans' murder. When this came out, David was routinely attacked and abused in the street, and his pregnant wife Maureen, Myra's sister, was also attacked. Later, he was jailed for stabbing someone in a fight, an action he said was aggravated by the stress of the trial and public scrutiny. This caused his wife to leave him. He wasn't cleared until Hindley's 1985 confessions. He eventually remarried 
and died of cancer in 2012. Number 5. Sheila Kilbride, John's mother, continued to set a place for her son at the dining table. On his birthday and at Christmas, she'd buy him presents every year, and every now and then she'd sit down and have a look through a little box of treasures he used to keep in his room. When giving a video interview towards the end of her life, she explained that while it might seem silly, she felt this kept her son alive in some way. It doesn't seem silly to me. No. It doesn't. Number six, Anne West, who remarried after her daughter Leslie's death, never really recovered from the ordeal. Until her death, she campaigned relentlessly, helped especially by the Sun newspaper against Myra Hindley's release. In one of the final interviews, she described a life where she hadn't slept properly for years, was on dozens of pills just so she could get out of the house, and never stopped even for a second thinking about her daughter screaming out for her on that audio tape. Yeah, I, that would that would. That, I don't want to think about this. Let's just move on. But it would just ruin. I, I can't deal with that. Number seven, Winnie Johnson, the mother of Keith Bennett, regularly went out into the moors looking for her son until she passed away. There's haunting footage of her in one of the documentaries I watched for this piece. She and her companion roam the bleak moorland, carrying a bouquet of flowers. She stops at a tussock of grass, lays down the flowers and says, There you go, lad. We'll find you one day and bring you home. We'll find you one day, son. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.